Well, this week we're going to begin a a new sermon series. For the next four weeks, we'll be working our way through a series of sermons called Flipping Tables. And one of the stories, one of the few stories that we find uh, in all four of the Gospels in the New Testament is the story of, of a thing that happened, a moment that happened when Jesus walked into the temple in the city of Jerusalem and started flipping over the tables of the money changers. That moment was a, a powerful act of, of protest on the part of Jesus. Now, all four of the gospel writers tell that story just a little bit differently. All of them find something different in that story, a different inspiration, a different lesson for us to take away. And so each Sunday for the next four weeks, we're going to be hearing, we're going to be hearing all, all four versions of that one story, the, the moment when Jesus walks into the temple and engages in an act of protest. We're going to see what lessons we can learn in this moment of protest that we're living through from, from the, the way in which Jesus protests and the reasons why he protested. Now take a listen to the story from the Gospel of Matthew as, as Danny shares our scripture reading with us. Matthew chapters 21 verses 12 through 16. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he cured them. But when the chief priestess and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did, and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, do you hear what do you hear these things they are saying? Jesus said to them, "Yes. <clears throat> have you never have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have you have prepared praise for yourself. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God." This morning, I want to tell the story of an event that took place in Durham, North Carolina. The story begins in 1957 when a a new Methodist pastor came to town. The Reverend Douglas E. Moore was excited to be moving to the big city of Durham, North Carolina. Reverend Moore was a young pastor. He had served a couple of small congregations out in the country, but now he was being appointed as the the pastor to the Asbury Temple Methodist Church, one of the large black congregations in the city of Durham. And Reverend Moore was excited to have this new responsibility, to have this new opportunity. He was also excited to be moving his family to the city of Durham. At the time, the city of Durham had a reputation for having some of the best race relations of any city in the American South. For years, leaders of the local black community and organizations like the the local chapter of the NAACP and the Ministerial Association had been working hard to build relationships with political leaders and with leaders in the business community. And they didn't exactly have a, a seat at the table. But they did at least have their foot in the door of the back room where decisions were made and compromises got worked out. And they had won some compromises over the years. You know, these local elders, the, these local organizations were able to host voter registration drives. And they ran employment programs. And, and people in, in Durham felt like the black community there had it pretty good, had it better than, than black communities in other cities around the South. 
Now, Reverend Moore had heard about, about how good life could be for black people in the city of Durham, and so he was excited to, to move his children and his family there. But when he got to the city of Durham, Reverend Moore was, was disappointed as he started trying to take his children to the swimming pool, as he tried to take them to the library to check out books. He was disappointed to discover that, as far as he could tell, the city of Durham was just like any other segregated southern city. It had the same injustices, the same inequality, the same prejudices and discrimination that he had encountered in other southern cities. In fact, as far as he could tell, the only difference was that nobody in Durham seemed to be pushing for change. Nobody seemed to be protesting the injustices of segregation. And so when he got to Durham, after he'd been there for a few months, Reverend Moore started going to these local elders and to these local organizations, and he started putting pressure on them and and trying to get them to take action, to do something. But when he went to these organizations, Reverend Moore discovered that people didn't want to hear what he had to say. You know, the elders of the black community looked at him and said, we don't even know you. You're not even from here. Sit down and stop rocking the boat before you upset the delicate balance that we have worked so hard to achieve. Frustrated that he couldn't get the elders of the the local black community to listen to him, Reverend Moore decided to, to start talking to the younger members of the black community. He talked to young people. He talked to students. As he talked to the the younger members of the black community there in Durham, he discovered that like him, many of them were frustrated at the slow, almost indiscernible rate of change in the community. They were frustrated with the lack of progress and the fact that nobody seemed to be taking action. Nobody seemed to be doing anything to put pressure on the community. And Reverend Moore started gathering a group of young black people at his church every Sunday afternoon. They would get together at the church and they would talk about segregation and injustice and they would talk about what kind of action they could take to to make a change in their community. And as they met Sunday afternoon after Sunday afternoon, eventually their conversation came to focus on an ice cream parlor. Now the Royal Ice Cream Parlor was an institution in, in the city of Durham. On Sunday mornings, the the black folks would go to their black churches and the white folks would go to their white churches. But then on Sunday afternoon, when, when worship was over, everyone, the white folks and the black folks alike, everyone would go to the Royal Ice Cream Parlor. Now, the the Royal Ice Cream Parlor served everyone in the community, but that doesn't mean that they served everyone equally. Now, the ice cream parlor sat on a, on a corner at an intersection, and on one side of the building, on one street, there was an entrance for the white customers. White customers could, could come inside, and they could take a seat at one of the comfortable booths. They could sit at the, the long counter, and a waiter would come to take their order. But just around the corner on the other street, there was a, a window where black customers could come and, and order their ice cream to go. And the thing that seemed particularly galling and and unjust to Reverend Moore and his young black friends was the fact that the Royal Ice Cream Parlor was located in the middle of a black neighborhood. It seemed unjust to them that that black children who lived in the neighborhood couldn't come in and have a seat and and eat their ice cream in their own neighborhood, but instead they had to order at the to-go window and and sit and, and eat their ice cream in the street. And so one, one Sunday evening... Reverend Moore led a group of, of young black people, young black students, uh, three, three black men and three black women. He led them down the street on a walk from his church to the ice cream parlor. And nobody knows if what happened next was, was something that just happened spontaneously or if it was part of a, a plan that they had come up with. All we know is that when they arrived at the ice cream parlor, instead of going around the corner to order the window for black customers... 
Reverend Moore and these six young people walked through the door for the white customers, and they they sat around the, the, the dining room. They took their seats at booths and along the counter, and then one by one, a a busboy came around and told each of them that they were going to have to leave, that they would have to go around the corner and order at the window. And one by one, each of these seven people, Reverend Moore and his six young friends, one by one, each of them said that they were not going to leave, that they were going to order and that they were going to sit and eat right there at the parlor. Well, eventually the, the tension started to escalate as, as children from the neighborhood started crowding around the windows and, and peering in to see what was happening in the ice cream parlor. Finally, the, the, the leadership, the authorities called the police. And then the police arrived. Reverend Moore and his six young friends were arrested. They were charged with trespassing. And this is the part of the story where, where you're hoping that I'm going to tell you that people in Durham were shocked And they were offended at the fact that these seven people had been arrested for trying to sit in the ice cream parlor and and order ice cream. This is the part where you're hoping I'm going to tell you that that this action, this protest made, made headlines around the nation and that America was outraged and that they put pressure on the leaders of of the Durham community and that eventually these these practices of segregation came to an end, that this protest achieved achieved pressure and change that that finally, finally something happened there in the city of Durham. That's what you're hoping I'm going to tell you right now, but the truth is that's that's not what happened at all. In fact, Reverend Moore and his young friends were were incredibly disappointed at the, the lack of anything that happened after this protest. And not only did this story of this protest not not make national headlines, it barely made a ripple in the local papers. And then Reverend Moore and his six young friends, the, the Royal Seven as they came to be called, they, they went to court and they were found guilty of trespassing and they were, were charged to pay a fine. And they appealed their, their conviction and then they, they were convicted again by an all-white jury and the all-white jury voted to increase their fine. They appealed again and they were found guilty again and then they appealed again and the United States Supreme Court refused to take up their case. Their legal action never amounted to anything. Even more frustrating than the fact that their their legal case didn't go anywhere and that they didn't get any traction in the local media, even more frustrating than that to Reverend Moore was the way that the, the leaders, the elders of the local black community responded to his protest. Not only did they refuse to speak up in defense of Reverend Moore and these young protesters, but many leaders of the black community there in Durham outright denounced what he had done. And they warned him that he was, was in, in jeopardizing the, the progress that they had made. They warned him that if he didn't settle down and keep quiet, that he was going to put at risk all of the progress that they had worked so hard for, maybe set their movement back a decade or more. And the leaders, the elders of the local black community turned their backs on, on Reverend Moore and his young friends. Almost nothing Almost nothing came of the the sit-in protest that they staged at the Royal Ice Cream Parlor. But that's not to say that nothing happened. The one achievable result, the one tangible thing that came, that came out of their protest, was that it inspired and galvanized the members of the young black community there in the city of Durham. Even as the the leadership of organizations like the NAACP and the Ministerial Association turned their backs on on Reverend Moore, young black people, most of them students, most of them young black women, started picketing each week there at the Royal Ice Cream Parlor. 
And that energy and those protests began to turn into a sort of an organization. And Reverend Moore and his young friends started reaching out to other churches and pastors and young people in other cities all around the South. And they began forming a network where churches would invite young people in and they would teach them how to protest. They would teach them how to take direct action. They would teach young black people how to to break the law and what to do when the police came for them. And as the months and as the years went by, they came up with a a plan. They came up with a vision. Their dream was that there would suddenly be a wave of sit-ins that would break out all across the South in southern cities all around the southern states. And they worked for months to plan this this organized sit-in, this wave of protest that would take place in the southern states. And then just two weeks before they were about to to launch their protest, just two weeks before everything was, was scheduled to happen, Suddenly, Reverend Moore in Durham received word that four young black men had staged a sit-in protest at at the lunch counter in a Woolworths in nearby Greensboro, North Carolina. And when when Reverend Moore heard what these four young men had done, his, his first response was to be dismayed. He said, they went too soon. They jumped the gun. We're not ready. They were supposed to wait for us. His first response was to, to be angry and to, to send out a message letting people know that it wasn't time yet. The plan was to, to launch this movement in two weeks. And then as he, he examined himself and felt this dismay and this anger in himself, suddenly Reverend Moore had a moment where he realized that he, he was beginning to sound an awful lot like the elders and the, the leaders who had so frustrated him over the months and over the years. These people who were always saying, wait, wait, now is not the time. You can protest, you can work for change, but you've got to do it at our pace and you've got to do it our way. When he realized that he was sounding like the very people who had frustrated him for so long, Reverend Moore took a a deep breath. And then he said, okay, I'm not ready, but clearly the young people are ready. And it's time for me to step back and to listen to their voices and to let them lead. And so that's what he did. He followed the lead of those four young men in Greensboro, North Carolina. He gathered his friends there in Durham, and they started staging sit-in protests at lunch counters and ice cream parlors all around the community. And this wave of sit-ins that spread all across the American South to cities all across the South, young black people staged sit-in protests. And this this sit-in protest movement became one of the one of the key moments, one of the critical moments in the civil rights movement in in American history. And it happened, it was able to happen because leaders like Reverend Moore had the wisdom and the good sense to get out of the way, to listen to the voices of the young people and to let the young people lead. There are moments in history when God speaks to us through the young people in ways that God cannot speak to us through, through people like me, people with gray beards. And there are moments in history when God does things through the younger generations that God cannot do through the elders of the community. There are moments, there are moments in history when God speaks to us through the younger generations. And because the younger generations don't have a seat at the table, because they don't have a foot in the door of the back room where decisions are made, because nobody hands them a microphone on Sunday morning and says, spend 20 minutes sharing your thoughts with us, because they don't have other platforms, often those moments when God God speaks to us through young people are moments, moments of protest. It's always been that way. It was that way in the, the time of Jesus as well. In today's scripture reading, we have the, 
the story of a moment when Jesus engaged in an act of protest. And in weeks to come, we're going to hear more of this story and we'll dig a little bit deeper into the details and dynamics of what was going on on the day when Jesus walked into the temple and flipped the tables over. But for today, here's what you need to know. One day, Jesus walked into the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And the, the temple was the most magnificent building in all of the city. It dominated the city of Jerusalem. The Jewish people believed that, that their temple was the literal home, the literal house of God on earth. This was the place where people went when they wanted to hear God's voice. This was the place where people went when they wanted to lift up their prayers so God could hear their voices. One day Jesus walked into the temple and he looked around the courtyards and he saw all of this stuff. He heard all of this noise. He saw tables where people were selling animals and he saw that the animals had left manure on the ground all around the courtyard. He heard the sound of of buzzing flies and, and the sound of all of those animals bellowing. And he saw that there were tables where money changers were, were exchanging foreign currency like they do at the exchange booths in the airport. He heard the, the sound of the money, money changers crying out their exchange rates and trying to drum up business. Jesus heard all of this sound and noise and activity that was happening in the temple and he realized, he realized that, that nobody could possibly hear God's voice over all of that racket and he realized that nobody's, nobody's prayers could possibly heard over all of that busyness and activity. Jesus realized that this, this temple, this sacred place was being treated as if it had no value at all. And we don't know. We don't know if what Jesus did next was, was part of a plan that he had worked out or if it was a spontaneous action. All we know is that in that moment, Jesus walked over to the tables of the money changers and he started flipping them upside down and money went flying through the air and then Jesus began shouting and driving all of those people and all of those animals out of the temple. Jesus began shouting, my father's house is meant to be a house of prayer but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus drove all of those people, those business people and those animals out, out of the temple. We remember that part of the story. But do you remember what happened next? In today's scripture reading, we we discover that after Jesus cleared all of those people and animals out of the courtyard, after he drove all of that that busyness and noise out out of the temple, other people came pouring in. And people with disabilities came pouring into God's temple. And people who had illnesses and were were looking for some kind of healing came pouring into God's temple. But mostly, mostly young people, children, students came pouring into the temple. And these young people, these children, these students took over the temple and they started chanting. They started shouting. They shouted at Jesus. They shouted to Jesus. They shouted for Jesus. They shouted, Hosanna, save us. Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna to the Messiah. Hosanna to the one who God sent to save and heal creation. They shouted. They shouted over and over again until finally the the priests with their gray beards the elders who were in charge of the temple came to Jesus and they said to him, do you hear, do you hear the racket that these young people are making? Do you see the disruption that they're causing? Do you hear the things that they are saying? Can't you make them be quiet? Can't you silence their voices? Can't you hear the noise that they're making? And Jesus smiled and he looked at those priests with their gray beards and he said, yes, he said, 
I can hear their voices. Isn't it beautiful, he said, how God speaks to us through children, through students, through the voices of the very young? I don't have all of the answers to all of the questions, to all of the challenges that are facing our society right now. And that's okay. And the more time I spend with Jesus, the more convinced I become that, that my role is not to have all of the answers. Instead, and in particularly in a moment like this, I, I've come to believe that my role is to have to go, the good sense and the wisdom to listen to the voices of the young, to hear what God is saying to us through the younger generations, and to get out of the way. And so I'm going to do that this morning. This morning I'm going to, to hand over the microphone to somebody who I believe God is speaking through right now, somebody whose voice I believe we all need to hear. Today I'm going to hand over the microphone to, to Daniel Crowder, a child of God, a daughter of Court Street United Methodist Church. I asked Danielle if she would share with us what she believes is, is, is happening right now, why we're seeing the protests we're seeing, and what she believes God is, is trying to say to us in this moment. I definitely do see um, a huge similarity between um, when Jesus flipped over the table in the temple and people protesting now. Um, he was hurt. He was frustrated. He was angry. People were treating this, the temple, a place that is supposed to be holy and meant for worship, in such a wrong and disrespectful way. And then the same way, black people um, are frustrated, they're hurt, they're upset with being treated disrespectfully, being treated unfairly. And the response to both of those feelings with Jesus and um, just people today in general um, who are experiencing racism is to um, express that anger through trying to stop it, trying to get that attention of um, the emotions that they feel. And so Jesus being frustrated, he flipped over that table and everybody stopped and was like, whoa, what is going on? He let them, that's how he expressed his frustration. That's how people knew he was frustrated. Um, and it caused change that day. Um, in the same way, black people are, um, you know, protesting and to show their frustration, to show their hurt against the injustice that they feel and it's grabbing the world's attention. While these protests were um, initially in response of George Floyd's death, they stand for more than just that one isolated incident. Um, these protests are for against all police brutality um, against black and brown people, whether that be um, a police officer shooting an innocent child like Tamir Rice, whether it be um, them choking somebody like they did um, George Floyd, whether it be them shooting somebody who is unarmed, beating someone up who is unarmed. It's against the discrimination and brutality that we face every single day. The protests are about change, they're about justice. Um, people are out here fighting for um, better treatment of African Americans by the police better training for the police, de-escalation tactics to be taught to police, um, 
and just for police to stop killing us. Jesus protested because the temple that was meant to be sacred was treated as though it had no value. People today are protesting because black bodies, which are sacred in God's sight, are being treated as though they have no value. Thank you, Danielle, for your insight. Thank you for your leadership. And thank you for your voice. And we look forward to hearing more from you in, in weeks to come. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would give us the wisdom and good sense to listen to the voices of the protesters, to listen to the voices of the young, and to follow where they lead us. In Jesus we pray. Amen.